Amen. I hope you have your Bible open to 1 Timothy 3. Uh, but before we jump into the, the text for this morning, I do want to speak to um, some of the circumstances that we've faced as a church over the last two weeks. Um, for those of you who weren't with us last Sunday, uh, one, of our, one of our elders stepped down. Uh, he was working through the qualifications for eldership, and uh, a great fear of the Lord fell over him, and he felt as if he was disqualified. And we were praying together this week, and he, he asked me to share this, and so I'm sharing this uh, with, his, with his confidence. He and I both have had a number of conversations over the last week about other people in our church, particularly other men in our church, who are feeling a, a heaviness, a weightiness. And it's in this area of, of anger in the home. Uh, God has, has poked something. He's revealed something, exposed something. And uh, we've felt that. And it, it's been a heavy two weeks, in my estimation. The fear of the Lord is moving. And I just want to say, good. <laughs> Praise God. Can I remind you? The Holy Spirit is the one who brings conviction. Can I remind you? God says He disciplines those whom He loves. And so when he, when he moves in our midst and when he makes us uncomfortable and when he exposes things and bubbles things up and we have the hard talks, that is good for us. It's good for our church. It's good for all those involved. And it reminds me of this quote. That's one of my favorite quotes. It's, it's lengthy. Bear with me as I read this. It's from James S. Stewart. He says, What have been the eras of the church's greatest influence? What have been the moments of its most powerful impact on the world. Not the epochs of its visible might and splendor. Not the age of succeeding Constantine when Christianity became imperialistic and all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them seemed ready to bow beneath the scepter of Christ. Not the days of great medieval pontiffs when Christ's vicar in Rome wielded a sovereignty more absolute than that of any secular monarch on the earth. Not there. Not the later 19th century when the church became infected with the prevailing humanistic optimism, which was quite sure that man was the architect of his own destinies, that a wonderful utopian kingdom of God was waiting him just around the corner, that the very momentum of his progress was bound to carry him thither. No, not in such times as these has the church exercised its strongest leverage upon the soul and conscience of the world. But in the days when it has been crucified with Christ and has counted all things but loss for his sake. Days when smitten with a great contrition and repentance, it has cried out to God from the depths. Church, I want you to hear from me. I have never felt more optimism, more hope for what God is doing in this place than I feel right now. I just sense that he's moving. I sense that he's working. He's brought us to our knees, and that's exactly where we need to be. As we're reminded here, that is the church that is fit for service. The, the church that is contrite. The church that is aware of its great need for Christ. The church that is not so enamored with the trappings of the world, but is clinging to Christ with all that they're worth. That's when the church is fit for service. God disciplines his church because he loves the world. The body of Christ, his agent to minister with grace and truth in the world. It's not a person, it's not a nation, and it's not a political party. It's the church. The church matters. And we're going to see that in our text this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living, and active word to us today. 
I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we look at our text and we look at this first verse, we learn here that Paul's intention was to return to Ephesus, which makes sense. The church was in crisis. He left Timothy there, and Timothy's facing some very real challenges. So Paul says, Timothy, I I want to get there. My intention is to get there. But here's the thing. Paul understood that God was Lord over his itinerary. And Paul, on many occasions, had tried to go one way, and the Lord had directed him another way. So he writes here, and he says, Timothy, I'm trying to get there, but I'm writing this to you in my absence. In case I can't get there as quickly as I'd like to, I'm writing this so that you would know how to conduct yourselves in the household of God. And we saw that beginning in chapter 2. He, he starts to lay out a, something of a blueprint we've referred to it as, like a list on how we need to conduct ourselves in the church. And we know the list begins in chapter 2 because if you look back in chapter 2 at verse 1, you can see this in your Bible. He says, first of all then, right, that's what you say at the start of a list. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. talked about the men need to pray and not fight. And the women need to not treat the church as a beauty pageant. And there's roles for men and there's roles for women. And here's what the leaders ought to do. And he's laying out for Timothy how they ought to conduct themselves in the church. And here in the conclusion, in verse 14 to 15, he clarifies. He says, I'm hoping to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that... Why is he writing this? So that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So chapters 2 to 3 exist so that we might know how to behave in the household of God. The Ephesians had gotten it all wrong. And we have the opportunity, the privilege, I'd say, the obligation to learn from their mistakes. This young church had started well in Ephesus, but they'd gotten it all wrong. Wolves in sheep's clothing had made their way into the congregation. And the church wasn't ready for it. And they had led many astray. Some of the leaders in the congregation, they themselves had gone astray and led many in the congregation with them. Many in the church were ignoring their consciences and they were embracing sin and worldliness. There were false teachers that were luring people in with foolishness and novelty and inspiring self-righteousness and asceticism. The church had gotten off to such a promising start But now it's turning into a public disgrace in the city. And the gospel witness in Ephesus is being ruined because of this mess. Now here's the temptation we face reading this here in the 21st century in Aurelia. The temptation we face whenever we open our Bible and we read, we want to say, well, that was them, but this is us. right? We want to say, oh man, poor Ephesus, you know, you guys made a whole bunch of blunders, but we would never make them here. The enemy would never send wolves into our congregation here at Redeemer. Our leaders would never fall into the snares of the evil one. We would never allow a culture of godlessness and worldliness to to make its way through our congregation, to make us careless about our pursuit of holiness. We would never have people from our congregation listening to false teachers on the internet. That stuff would never happen here. And if that's your approach to the text, 
before you tune me out for the rest of the service, because that's what you should do if that's your approach to the text, but before you do, can you hear this? There is a 2,000-year-long history of dead churches that told themselves the exact same thing. Redeemer City Church, we need to learn from God's Word how to behave in the household of God. Because this is His church. He has a glorious purpose for His church here in Aurelia. And if we lose sight of that, He will shut our doors, and He'll close us down, and He'll replace us with a church that trembles at His Word, as He should, because there's too much at stake. God is fiercely protective and unapologetically particular about His church. But we'll never understand why that is until we understand what the church is. Why does this matter? Today we're going to look to the text. We're going to ask the question, what is the church? In our passage this morning, Paul roots all of these instructions that he's been laying out. He roots them all in the very nature of the church. This matters because of who you are, church. And the first thing he says is this. The church is the household of God. We see that in verse 15. He says, I'm writing that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Think back to the qualifications we've just considered for elders. The qualifications for deacons. Think back to the emphasis that has been placed on how the elders and the deacons conduct themselves in their homes. Why is that emphasis laid in place? Why is he leaning in so hard? Because the church is a family. The church is a family. And that language is all over the New Testament. So you're welcome to flip ahead in your, in your Bible to chapter 5, where he says in verses 1 to 2, Paul says, don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him. How? As you would a father. Younger men, as brothers. Older women, as mothers. Younger women, as sisters. In all purity. Jesus used this language too. Do you remember that story? His biological mother and his brothers were outside. They were looking for him. And so people came and they said, Hey, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are outside. And then he turned and he looked to his disciples and he said, Here are my brothers and my mothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The New Testament is clear that the church is a family. And that's one of the reasons why it's so devastating when we get it wrong in here when we fight more than we pray, when we parade our wealth and we treat the worship gathering as if it's a beauty pageant, when we resent our roles and we look jealously at the calling of others, when we appoint leaders who don't walk the walk, when we get it wrong in here, people get deeply, deeply hurt. Because there's no pain like church pain. And some of us in this place have experienced that pain. Some of us are not the same people that we used to be because of the betrayal that we experienced in the church. Some of us are still, after years and years and years, we're still bitter and distant and disillusioned. Why did it hurt so much? Why did it change you so profoundly? This is why. Because the church is the household of God. It's not just a club it's not, it's not a workplace. It's not a community. It's, it's the family of God. That was, that's the design. At its best, the church should foster trust and relationships and community. But we live in a fallen world, and we fall far, far, far short of what God had for us. Therefore, moving forward, 
We must resolve to structure this family in accordance with his standards, in accordance with his blueprint. Here's how we ought to conduct ourselves in the household of faith. We have to follow this because if we don't, if we give ourselves liberty to do this however we please, we're going to bring all of our own dysfunction into the mix. We're going to bring our own dysfunction, our overbearing parenting of our kids, the legalism that we impose on them, the the neglect that we receive from our mother and father, all of the unhealth that all of us can point to in our own homes. We'll bring it into this household and we'll leave broken, battered people in our wake. That has happened all throughout history. And it should not be the case. Paul says, listen, here's how you ought to conduct yourselves and here's why you ought to conduct yourselves this way. You're the household of God. That's the first thing he wants us to see. Second, the church is the dwelling place of the living God. That's what he goes on to say in verse 15. You're the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Now, what's he doing there? Is he repeating himself? If you're reading that you know, in, in a quick glance, it looks as if he's just being repetitive, right? The church is the household of God, the church of the living God. But no, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, if you look in close, what he's doing here is he's adding weight to these commandments. God would often describe himself, refer to himself as the living God whenever he was warning his people, rebuking his people, chastising his people. I think the Apostle Paul wants us to to look to the Song of Moses here. I think that's what he's drawing our attention back to. The Song of Moses was given to Moses after he had received the Ten Commandments. So God spoke to Moses and he gave him instructions on how the people were to conduct themselves And then God said, teach the people this song. And here's what God said in the song. See now that I, even I am He. And there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There's none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. So God has given his commandments to the Israelites, saying, here's how you ought to conduct yourselves. And then he leans in and he says, and I am the living God, and I'm among you. And I wound and I heal and I kill and I make alive. I am the living God. What does he mean? So these commandments, they're not optional. Obedience to my leadership, it's not optional in this community. Because that's not who you are. In this community, the living God dwells uniquely and particularly in your midst. And he's to be obeyed. I think that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying in the church, the living God is active. He watches over it. He protects it. He purifies it. He roots out rebellion. He drives away the enemy. And Paul's reminding Timothy, the stakes can't be higher. Obedience to these instructions in the household of God, it's it's not optional. In the temple of Artemis, they can do as they please. The priests of Baal can live like hypocrites because those gods are dead. They're made of wood and stone. But this is the church of the living God. Ours is the God who struck down Nadab and Abihu when they wandered carelessly into the Holy of Holies. Remember that story from the summer? Ours is the God who struck down Uzzah when he reached out and he touched the Ark of the Covenant Ours is the God who struck down Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to the Holy Spirit. And that story is in the New Testament. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Our brother came under the fear of the living God last Sunday. And praise God for that. 
Our God is jealous for His glory. And this is His church. And He brings conviction. And when He does, we need to humble ourselves as we saw. We need to bow our knee lest we find ourselves in opposition to the living God. As we were reminded last week, this great quote from C.S. Lewis. We're talking about Aslan. Aslan represents Christ in this book. And they asked, she said, isn't he safe? And uh, Mrs. Beaver replied, safe. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And the reason why he's so particular about his church is because, thirdly, the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. A pillar and buttress of the truth. You see that in verse 15. So maybe you're here and you don't know what a buttress is. Uh, those of you who are architecturally minded know, but for some of us, we have to Google these things. A buttress, you can imagine this supporting structure that, that holds up the wall, and, and it, it's leaning against the wall, bringing support. And he says that's what the church is. The church is a pillar, strengthening, lifting, a buttress, supporting the truth of God. Now before we go further, I want you to see something. Notice that he refers to the church as a pillar and buttress, not the pillar and buttress. Meaning, Redeemer, we are like one pillar in the Parthenon. And we need to remember that. Standing side by side with faithful churches in our city and in our country and around the world, declaring the the truth of the gospel. We're like one wedge, one buttress planted next to many others, supporting the wall from the coming attacks. But together, with true churches around the world and through the centuries, we serve to to hold up, to pass on and protect the truth of the gospel. William Mounts argues that this is perhaps the most significant phrase in all the pastoral epistles. And what's so significant about this passage is that it reminds us of our purpose. When the church forgets her assignment, everybody suffers. And the church often forgets her assignment. We've witnessed this throughout history. There was a time when the church thought that her assignment was to seize hold of the political sword. Forced conversions and holy wars and tyranny ensued. The message of the gospel was obscured. And we are still facing the consequences of those actions today, hundreds and hundreds of years later. There was a time recently when the church thought her assignment was to model the corporate world. So we brought in CEOs to train our pastors and elders. And we franchised our favorite church models. And we worshipped at the cult of personality. But then those personalities fell and those franchises blew up. And now there are communities and cities that have a deep disdain and distrust for the gospel. At other times we've tried to turn the church into a self-help center. Other times we've tried to turn it into a community gathering place. Other times we've tried to turn it into a social welfare club. And listen, there's nothing wrong with social welfare clubs and gathering places and community centers, of course. But that's not what the church is. The church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. That's why we exist. We exist to hold high, to pass on, and to defend the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's who we are, church. In our preaching, our evangelism, our mission, our discipleship, our corporate worship, in anything and everything that we do, we're called to celebrate and proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're called to defend it. The overseers in Ephesus failed in this assignment. So they were being called to action once again. 
when false teachers come in and they distort the gospel, it's our responsibility as the church to rise up and say, no. When false teachers come in and they try to impose legalism and and all of this self-righteousness onto the gospel, we stand up and we say, no. When false teachers come in and they bring in all this foolishness and their, their myths and try to turn this into some speculative game, we stand up and we say, no. When false teachers come in and they try to take the gospel and politicize it and use it for their political agendas and aims, we say, no. No. We're called to defend the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So why is God so serious about the health of the church? Here's why. Because if the church loses sight of her mission, if Redeemer loses sight of the mission, then the truth will not be held high in our city. And if the truth is not held high in our city, then lost people go to hell. Those are the stakes. That's the urgency. Woe to the church that's taken off of mission, that fails to hold high the truth of the gospel, and that pursues any other end. That's not why we exist. God won't have it. I want to remind you what we read in chapter 1. Paul writes, this, this saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance. What is it? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy. Why? For this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Hear this, Jesus is on a mission to save sinners. That's our king, and that's what he's about. He saved Paul for this reason, that in Paul, people would see a transformed life. They would see the gospel of Jesus Christ on full display. They would see that there is hope for sinners. This is why God saved you, friends. This is why he saved me. He saved us that we might proclaim, that we might be a testimony to the watching world that there is a God who saves sinners. And so with every ounce of energy that we have, we need to point to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that truth of the gospel is not revealed in a set of dogmas or a set of theological treaties. No, no, no. The truth of the gospel is revealed in a person. Jesus said that. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. One author summarizes, the heart of Christianity is not an idea, but a brute fact. Not a theory, but a particular human life. Not a general principle, but a person with a name. Jesus. The church exists to exalt and proclaim the person and work of Jesus Christ. And before I want to leave us for a moment to sit in that, because I think in each and every one of our hearts, confusion can creep in, and we can try to turn the church into something else. We've got lots of, of good ambitions in our lives, right? There are lots, you've got lots of things. As I mentioned, caring for the, the poor, that's important. Politics are right and good. Community and gathering, all of these things are important. I, I want those things here in a really things. They're worth pursuing. But that's not the church. That's not what we're about. And it's just a good time for us to be reoriented. Because in our hearts, we're going to feel these desires to try to take the, take the church and try to weaponize it, mechanize it, move it in the direction of, of our passions, our zeal. We need to be reoriented by the text right now.
This is what we're about. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Thus, in verse 16, having finished with his instructions for the church, Paul explodes in this hymn of praise, this beautiful summary of the truth that we exist to proclaim. Here it is in verse 16. Are you ready? Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. In this brief verse, the Apostle Paul summarizes the life of Christ in this beautiful hymn. From his incarnation to his ascension, this is the truth that we proclaim. So I want to just sit in this to worship our way through this as we come to a conclusion this morning. What do we proclaim? We proclaim that Jesus was manifested in the flesh. Our God became a man. And let that, that should blow our minds every time we say it. Our God, the creator of heaven and earth, he became a man. He humbled himself, took on human flesh. Our God is not a distant and cold God. He's gentle and lowly. He drawn the ears to us. Our God is not a disinterested God. On the contrary, He came to be close to the brokenhearted. He entered into our broken world so that He could lead us home. That's who He is. We proclaim that He was vindicated by the Spirit. And we see this all through Jesus' life and ministry. So when He was baptized, for example, you remember what happened? He went down with John the Baptist and He went to be baptized. And as He was being baptized, the Holy Spirit descended on Him like a dove. And in case we weren't connecting the dots, the Father declared from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The Spirit vindicated His ministry as Jesus healed the sick and He restored sight to the blind and He called to those who were dead and they walked out of their tombs. And He healed the the woman who was bleeding and He multiplied the loaves and the fish and, and Jesus in His miraculous ministry met us in our need. He revealed Himself to be the One that we have been waiting for. The One that we need. The God-man. He lived perfectly. Obeyed perfectly. He was everything that we want to be that we fall short of. The perfect man. And then He died for our sin. He bore in His flesh the curse for all the wrong that we have done. He was crucified, dead, and buried. But three days later, the Spirit vindicated Him again as Jesus walked victoriously out of the tomb. He's conquered sin and death once and for all. He holds in His hands the keys of death and hell. There's freedom and there's life and there's forgiveness and there's hope. And His name is Jesus Christ, vindicated by the Spirit. We proclaim that, church. And we proclaim that He was seen by angels. I imagine we don't talk about this when we talk to our neighbors, do we? It's powerful. Matthew Henry says this. He's talking to the angels. He says, they worshipped Him. They attended His incarnation, His temptation, His agony, His death, His resurrection, His ascension. This is much to His honor. It shows what a mighty interest He had in the upper world. That angels ministered to Him. For He is the Lord of angels. The Lord of hosts. We sing that in a number of our songs. That's what we mean. It's the host of angelic armies. He possesses all authority. His kingdom is advancing powerfully and gloriously in the world. Jesus is the God of angel armies. And He's come. Who can stand against Him? When we see Him for who He is, we declare with the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor 
things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Who could stand between us and Him? The God of angel armies. So we proclaim Him among the nations, Paul goes on to say. Here's a King who unites every tribe, every ethnicity, every tongue, every cultural barrier that would divide us. Here's a king whose invitation is not hindered by any of those barriers. He says, go to the Jews. He says, come to me. To the Greeks, he says, come. To the Gentiles, he says, come. To the rich, come. To the poor, to the men, to the women, to the slave, to the free, to all who have ears to hear, let them hear. He says, come. Jesus said, go therefore into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. That's what we're about, church. That's what we're about, proclaiming him to all of the nations. Woe to us if we ever get so single-minded, so short-sighted that we can't see beyond what he's doing in these four walls. I love this church, but can I tell you something? He's doing something bigger than this. He's doing something bigger than this in our city. Lots of faithful churches in this city proclaiming the gospel to the nations. Lots of faithful churches around the world proclaiming the gospel to the nations. Churches that do things better than we do them here. Churches that are being used in unique and distinct ways, different than what we're being used for here. Let us be a church that sees the big picture, that God is on the move. Oh, we long to see Him proclaimed to the nations. We proclaim His victory. Paul says He'll be believed on in the world. As the gospel goes forth, it will not return void. Here's the question. Do you believe that? When we proclaim the gospel, there's power in it. Can I tell you, sometimes as as a pastor, I I wrestle with this. I have to ask the Lord for more faith because I stand up here and and I proclaim that there's a God who loves us who sent His Son to die so that sinners could be brought into relationship with Him. I said, all you need to do is turn from your sin, repent, and believe that Jesus died for your sin, and you could be saved. You could have an eternity with Him in glory. And I I say this, and yet I feel like I'm just, Kevin DeYoung, I think, said, sometimes it feels like the gospel is like we're shooting spitballs at people in in shields of armor. You ever feel that? Is that just me? You, You preach the gospel, and you feel like you're looking at your unsaved loved ones, your unsaved neighbors, and they're like, they're suited up in this, armor and and you come along and you just got this little spitball and you think I don't think this is doing anything at all and and we could be like that and I can't remember what Kevin DeYoung said but I I think it was I think he said the gospel's like a hand grenade it's not a spitball you know quit quit throwing it out there as if you think it's just a little spitball pinging off the armor every time we preach the gospel it's like you're throwing a hand grenade in God has the power to transform the hardest heart even this morning, even right now, he has the power to take a heart of stone, someone who is dead in sin, and to bring them to life. The gospel has power to save. And so the, the Bible tells us that we are to be ever being filled with the Spirit. We as the people of God need to roll out of bed each morning. We all have the Spirit if we're in Christ. The Bible says, because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So we have the Spirit. But then in Ephesians, Paul says, you need to be filled with the Spirit ever being filled with the Spirit. I'm doing this, sir. It's like a hand in a glove, is what uh, my friend Tim Kerr always says, where you feel the power of the Spirit. 
We need to be praying that every morning, and then we go into the world, and with all that we've got, we proclaim the truth of the gospel. And Paul says, he will be believed. He will be believed. In uh, Philippians 2, 9-11, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess one day. Our God is victorious. Jesus declared, I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We're in a season of unrest Here in Redeemer, we're feeling a bit of unrest. Here in Canada, we're feeling lots of unrest. And it's easy for us to succumb to despair. It's easy for us to to look at all of these challenges and these circumstances and to hide our heads in the sand. And can I tell you, God's word won't let us do that. Jesus wins. And what we see in God's word is that it's times when, when our circumstances seem most bleak. It's times when we feel like we are at our weakest when God does the greatest, most powerful things in our midst. That's how He operates. He does things in such a way that nobody would ever give credit to us, that nobody would ever give credit to you, but all glory would go to God. All glory to Christ for what He's done. He is working. He is working. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Oh, that we would believe that afresh. Oh, that we would roll out of bed each day believing that, walking in that authority, walking in that confidence, asking God, what are you going to do in our midst? uh, One of the things we we worked through over this weekend is we looked at the survey, and I was so encouraged to see how many in the congregation say that they have shared the gospel more than two, five times this year. And I would just say, praise God for that. And I would say, hey, next year... Let's share the gospel 25 times, 35 times. Let's send it out there because God is, let's just be throwing seeds and wait and see what God will do in our midst. Let's walk with authority and confidence and boldness. I love what, what we see here. Paul finishes and he says, here's what we, we proclaim. We proclaim that he was taken up in glory. So Jesus ascended to heaven and he sitteth upon the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. We worked through that this summer. Jesus reigns. The Father has enthroned Him, God's Word says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church. Here we come back to the church. Put Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him, who fills all in all. Jesus reigns, and He is the head of the church. And and we are now the fullness of Him, going out into the world, doing as He pleases, following His lead. We exist to bring Him glory. We exist to proclaim this gospel story. We exist to lift high and to defend the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We exist to pass on that which we have received from generations past. This is the hope of the world, and it's why we exist. It's who you are, church, and it's whose you are. When we see who we are, that we're the household of God, 
that we're the church of the living God, that we're a pillar and buttress of the truth, then we will take very seriously God's instructions for us as his people. When we see whose we are, that we were purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and that he's enthroned as the head of this church, then we will abandon any notion that we have of attempting to do things our own way. So church, I ask, will we resolve to follow his lead? Will we tremble at his word? Conduct ourselves with the knowledge that the living God is in our midst? Will we hold the truth of the gospel high? Will we defend it from the attacks that will arise from without and from within? If we will do this, if we will make this our aim and set aside all of these other ambitions, if we will make this our aim as the church of the living God, then we will see things that will defy our wildest imagination. I believe that with every fiber of my being. We will see hearts of stone transformed into hearts of flesh. We'll see people who are dead in their sin come to life. We've seen that. I believe as we learn, as we lean into the Lord, we'll see more and more of this. We'll see broken marriages revived with gospel hope. We'll see men and women and boys and girls growing in holiness from one degree of glory to the next. We'll see the body of Christ working in unity with every member mobilized and functioning as it should, empowered by the Holy Spirit under the direction of Christ our head. And that will be a glorious thing if we will resolve to let Christ lead this church, if we will resolve to tremble at his word. So can we do this, church? Can we set aside our agenda and invite him to lead us? Because we are the church. We are his church. So let's follow his lead. Let's tremble at his word, and let's proclaim this glorious truth with every breath in our lungs. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, I just pray that you would speak to us now in a way that only you can. Lord, I confess, I I close the Bible, and I close my mouth, and my heart just wonders, did your truth go forward the way that it deserved to go forth? Was it received the way that it deserved to be received? Lord, we just want to surrender that to you right now. I pray in Jesus' name that your truth would press deep into our hearts. Lord, every, every novel thought, every opinion of mine, Lord, let it fall to the floor. Let it be forgotten. There's no power in that. But where your word goes forth, there is power. It never returns void. I pray that you'd work in us, God. God, I confess. I confess that there are things that creep into my heart, distortions that I want to make in the church. Lord, that I, I want to put my hands on the steering wheel at times and, and turn in, in directions of my whims. And Lord, that's true for all of us. Lord, what we need is to be reoriented. What we need is a godly focus, a right focus. Lord, we're reminded from this church in Ephesus that it can go off the rails so quickly. God, I pray that that would sober us, humble us, cause a healthy fear and trembling to come over us. It can go off the rails so quickly, God. We are so capable of falling short. 
But thank You that in Your grace and Your mercy, You haven't left us to our own devices. You've spoken. You've given us Your truth. You've you've laid it out. You've given us these things so that we would know how to conduct ourselves in the household of God. You've given us Your Spirit to impress truth upon our consciences, to, to bring us back into the straight and narrow when we stray. You've given us brothers and sisters in Christ to sharpen us as iron sharpens iron. You've given us other faithful churches, Lord. We're just one pillar among many. Lord, who can, who can grab hold of us as we go astray and can set us on the right path. Lord, we thank You that You have not left us alone. I pray that You'd help us now just to walk forward with confidence. To hold high the Gospel with confidence. Oh Lord, I pray that we would see five years from now, 25 years from now, that we would just see incredible miraculous, gospel-exalting work here in this city that would be traced back to just slow, faithful, steady obedience as your people go out into the world and proclaim this truth. This truth that looks like foolishness to those who are perishing. It looks like foolishness to our neighbors, to our loved ones. But to those who have eyes to see, it is the power of God. Lord, help us to be faithful in proclaiming it as a church, as your people, as we're gathered, as we're scattered. God, we want to be used by you. So Lord, we ask for your help. We ask you to do what only you can do. And God, I, just, I would pray if there's anyone here who's fallen under the, the sound of the gospel, that they would hear and know today that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. That, that none of us are too far gone. That the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. That our penalty was paid by Jesus Christ. That our sin can be washed away. That though our sins are as scarlet, we can be white as snow. That our sin can be removed as far as the east is from the west. That we don't need to earn it. That we don't need to strive for it. But that it's been purchased for us. Given to us free of charge by the Lord Jesus Christ. He loves us. God, I pray that if there's anyone here who is lost, I pray that they would be found. If there's anyone here who's been trying to do this in their own strength for a lifetime, I pray that they would come to Jesus who said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Lord, I pray that people would receive rest today and that we would go out into the world as ambassadors of this glorious gospel. Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' mighty saving name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?